News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It's hard to think back and remember what life was like before social media came along. Even having a conversation like that with my kids, they look at you like you're from some other planet when you try to describe. Um, Yeah, you actually had to reach somebody on the phone before cell phones. If you didn't catch them at home, that was it. Well, social media had that kind of influence on us as well. There's a new series on Global that is looking at just how much social media influences our real and digital lives. The host is Anne Gaviola and joins us now to talk more about that. Good morning, Anne. Good morning. It's great to be part of this project, which is very much a team effort. Oh, great. Okay, so it's called Influence. Tell us about this. Uh, Sure. I I think I want to start just a little bit about why we felt it was so important to tackle this this series. And you mentioned, obviously, social media has become ubiquitous. I mean, you talk to your kids about it, and they're like, what do you mean it didn't exist before? I, for one, am very thankful that I grew up pre-social media. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, We also wanted to address the fact that, you know, our behaviors have changed during the pandemic. We're spending a lot more time in front of our screens and by extension on social media. So it's kind of front and center in a lot of people's minds. I think that there is increased awareness uh, because of some major events that happened over the fall. There were the Facebook files or the Facebook papers, as some people refer to them. This was first reported by the Wall Street Journal. And that was kind of our first look under the hood at you know, what's going on at Facebook, what executives knew and understood about their product and uh, the potential for harm to users, especially the youngest users, and what they chose to do with that information. And then we had that damning testimony uh, out of the U.S., a whistleblower, former Facebook employee, Frances Haugen, uh, and she, she said she had proof. She detailed uh, that the platform, uh, the various platforms under that same parent company, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, um, had information that showed that it harmed young users and that they they chose, you know, profit over the well-being of users, according to her, uh, and that their product sowed division. Um, it, it in, in her view, you know, upended democracy. And then we had the, that documentary, uh, The Social Dilemma, kind of reminding us or educating us about the business models uh, for how these companies work. It's clicks for engagement, and a lot of time that engagement is inflammatory uh, content and often, you know, problematic. It's not just... Right cats and, and fuzzy dogs. And this this came up as well during the the election campaign. And so it felt like, you know, this is the time to really dig into this. Right. It, it took us a long time to get here, though, didn't it, Anne? Because for a long time, we thought it was just fuzzy cats and fun and connecting with friends and keeping track of things. And it has taken us only until the last couple of years to realize that there is a dark side to this. Right. And, and the genie's out of the bottle now. And so what are we going to do about it? Uh, you're right. The, the talks about, you know, what can be done kind of meaningfully at the, at the federal level in terms of regulating what should be done, what could be done, uh, began, let's call it a couple of years ago, in terms of bills being crafted that would uh, rein in what's happening online, whether it's it's online hate or harm or, you know, uh, personal privacy concerns. Uh, the problem with those bills is... Um, well, they're, according to different experts, you know, they, they may have been uh, kind of a blunt instrument where you needed something a little more um, precise to go after uh, social media giants. But let's put that aside for a second. Uh, they died when Parliament was dissolved uh, in August ahead of the federal election. So they haven't gone anywhere. 
Now, um, part of the liberal platform was they said, if we're reelected, we're going to revisit all of this within the, our first 100 days in office. So um, we're, we're coming up on that 100 days and, and kind of clock is ticking. However, you, you do have to uh, keep in mind that Parliament was only back uh, in the fall. So if you go by that metric, we're about halfway through that 100 days. Right. But it doesn't look like anything's actually being done about this. I mean, we'll see. There are conversations being had, but that doesn't really translate into action. And I think that's really important when you think about the fact that you know social media has existed for about a quarter century. And uh, according to many experts that I spoke with, including a woman by the name of Natasha Tusikoff, she's the author of uh, this book called Choke Points, Global Private Regulation on the Internet. She says, if you look at what Canada is doing, it's a whole lot of nothing so far. Uh, we're laggards behind uh, what other peer countries have been doing. Look at what's happening over in Europe. And uh, the other thing, too, is, I mean, it is difficult to, to crack down, to, to rein in what these, these tech giants are doing. They're, they're not domiciled in Canada. They, um, they're, they're massive. They're very powerful. They have deep pockets. They have great lawyers. And, uh, yeah, if they're not willing to play ball, it, it's really tricky. But we, it, by some metrics, we haven't even started well, that's it. What about the like responsibility of people? Are we realizing this? Do you think that people are changing their habits? Um, well, I, I'm, I don't want to speak for everyone. I think that they are, the point that the phase that we're in right now is kind of the awareness phase. And sometimes there has to come a greater public awareness before there is action. Uh, and to be clear, I mean, we've Global News has for the series reached out to some of these social media platforms and we acknowledge that, you know, they've changed the way that we communicate and there's good and there's kind of the darker side of it all, too. Um, and, and for example, Meta, their, their Canadian division, this is the company that owns Facebook and Instagram. Uh, they tell us that they've been calling for updated regulations for two and a half years. So they do want some clarity in terms of what what should be done, what could be done uh, from the federal government. It hasn't come yet. And I, I do want to say as well, a spokesperson for uh, Meta tells Global News that for years, Meta has done extensive work in, in uh, studying, you know, bullying, suicide, self-injury, eating disorder prevention. And they say they're going to continue to look for opportunities to help people struggling. So it is on the radar. Right. Okay. But I guess what, what you're looking at here in the first part of this series is what can government do and are they prepared to do it? Yeah. And there are different ideas about the, the, the approach that this government, uh, the federal government should take. Um, there are, you know, people who say we should not be so heavy handed. You don't want to trounce on freedom of expression because these social media platforms are effectively, you know, they're the new uh, town halls, um, and they're a way for people to connect, to get ideas out there. We don't want to put in rules that are so onerous that we kind of clamp down on that because it's, it's important and it's part of, you know, functioning democracy. And other people say, actually, the way that these uh, companies are constructed, the fact that that engagement is prioritized, regardless of whether it's, you know, fake news or um, inflammatory, uh, et cetera, or, or, or hate-filled or, or what have you, um, the fact that their business models kind of rely on that engagement and that activity means that until you address that root problem, you're not going to change the atmosphere on social media. So it is really complicated. There are a lot of things to think about. And there's, there's a fine balance here, I think, to be achieved. The question is, are we getting down to business quickly enough? Because we can talk about it all we want, but 
it's been a while and, and uh, a lot of people are feeling there's a need for immediate action. Absolutely. Okay, so and where can people find out more? Uh, so the, the first in this series that I'm pretty excited about, um, my story about whether or not we can, should, could regulate these social media giants and how do you even go about doing that? If you look at what the experience has been in other countries, it's really, really difficult. Uh, so that piece was out uh, yesterday on all platforms. I'm working ahead on the second piece, which is going to look at what, what we refer to as finfluencers. So you've heard of social media influencers, uh, but there are uh, types of influencers who give money advice uh, on social media, oh. whether it's TikTok or Instagram. And so I'm looking at kind of the good and the bad. On the one hand, you know, they have the opportunity to reach out to people who may be hesitant or afraid to talk about money, make it really kind of fun and accessible. Right. But it's a wild west. And I mean, anyone can tell you anything. Um, it, it, the onus is on, on the user to... Right cross-reference anything they're told to check out a person's credentials. And there's no getting around it. You still have to do your homework. Right. Okay, I'm going to check that one out for sure. And thanks so much for your time. You bet. Always a pleasure. That's Anne Gaviola, Senior Digital Broadcast Journalist for Global News. You can check out the series called Influenced at globalnews.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. We want to highlight some of the good news that's happening out there these days, too. So let's talk about something that's going on at UBC. It's a group of researchers at the university is leading a $24 million project to treat spinal cord injury. What's so unique about this? Let's find out. Joining us now is Dina Shaharari, who's the co-principal investigator and assistant professor in the Department of Orthopedics and the School of Biomedical Engineering at UBC. Thank you for joining us this morning. Hi, good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. So tell me about this project. What is so unique and special about the research that you're doing? Yeah, that's a good question. Thank you. So we at UBC have recruited a total of uh, 32 scientists and researchers from Canada and also across the world to work on spinal cord injury research. And uh, we all come from different angles, from different research backgrounds and engineering, different topics in science, such as neuroscience, biology, chemistry, physics, and of course, our clinicians, and we have orthopedic spine surgeons. And most importantly, we also have colleagues uh, with backgrounds in ethics. And so the strength of our team is that now we have a very multidisciplinary team. And really, the need for it, uh, the reason that we put this team together is that spinal cord injury is a very complex challenge. And while there has been a lot of exciting work that has been achieved over the years on this topic, we simply don't have a therapy. And so what we are hoping to do in this project uh, is to combine all these approaches and try to tackle this challenge. So is this a new way of looking at it then, Dina? Is it like having this multidisciplinary team, is this a new approach? I wouldn't say it's a new approach. It's a combinatorial approach. So all of these, it's all like you're putting the pieces of the puzzle together, if you would, right? We can't start from scratch, and we certainly don't need to and don't want to do that because we have had a lot of success while approaching it from biology, from neuroscience, from engineering angles, from the clinical aspects, Right. And uh, I would argue that um, a lot of us have never really worked at least closely with people in ethics. 
uh, and why ethics is important, and I like to stress that, is that this time we are bringing the aspects of the patients into it. And while we are not uh, into the sort of clinical trials, at least in this project, is that it's important to put the patient first and know what needs we have to keep in mind. Right. What kind of advancements have been made in the last few years when it comes to spinal cord injuries? Are we making a real difference? We, uh, it is a very sensitive question to ask that because I, I personally don't need to give any false hopes to it. But there's been certainly a lot of advancements, both in the biomaterial side, and I'm biased because I'm the biomaterial scientist, and uh, definitely a lot in the biology and neuroscience and also developing different medicine uh, to, to work on this treatment as, far as, uh, as well as different technological aspects of it. So there's certainly been a lot of exciting work. Um, that has been right. done and certainly promising, but nothing really close to the finish line. But that's so interesting, though. But is that usually what happens, like in your line of work, is that you don't want to say too much because then people mm-hmm. really get excited about it? Yeah, that is true. And uh, yeah, you know, once in a while I get emails, and I'm not a clinician, I'm a basic scientist, right? But I get emails from people who have recently been injured or from their families. And they're saying that, oh, which clinical trial do you think I should sign up for? And it's just that there's a lot of, I would say, false advertisement and false hope out there, right? And uh, we are, we are, we have been very careful and very uh, stressing yet that uh, we don't know. We are certainly hopeful, and this is what this part of we believe in what we do, right? Right, yeah, but um, you wouldn't be getting awarded $24 million for this project if there wasn't some some hope yeah. involved in that, though, Dina. That is true, that is true, yes. Please. All right, well, hopefully we'll be talking to you when there's a really big breakthrough to talk about. Dina, thank you so much for your time. Sure, thank you so much for having me, and thank you to your team and your listeners. That is Dina Shariari, who's a co-principal investigator, assistant professor in the Department of Orthopedics and the School of Biomedical Engineering at UBC. So the team, the project that she's talking about, awarded $24 million. This is federally funded work. And what are they going to be doing? Well, in layman's terms, they're building a biomaterial bridge to help regrow nerve fibers. And this has to do with spinal cord injuries. They, as you heard, she tries to downplay it, but listen, they wouldn't be awarded all that money if this wasn't some really great revolutionary steps that are potentially being made here. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we're hoping that the worst of this atmospheric river this week is now behind us. That's what we heard in the forecast, but it doesn't mean that it didn't cause a lot of damage where it could. And that means out in the Fraser Valley, people living in Abbotsford, particularly in the Claiborne Village area, they are definitely feeling the effects of that. Joining us now is Sitwinther Baines, who's the owner of Parset Blueberry Farm in the Claiborne Village area. Sitwinther, thank you for being with us. Yes, good morning. Thank you for having me, Sitwinther. What is the situation like at your farm this morning? Well, as of yesterday, uh, we have had a bit of a relief. Uh, We didn't have rain from 5 o'clock onwards. The ditches had crested uh, but hadn't gone onto the road, so the high level of water around us on the road section, but the fields have uh, completely filled up again. They're not submerged as they were with the last atmospheric rivers, but the water table is really, really high. And, uh, you know, again, it's just fields so surreal that in about a month and a half, we can go through three types of floodings that we didn't, of course, didn't anticipate, but also have really no control over and really don't know what to do. And and the worst of it all is that we won't know results of this uh, effects of this damage until the spring and then later in, like in the fall after our production numbers are in. 
So growers are kind of feeling the stress of uh, not knowing what's going to happen, but also having like no recourse. And that's, I think, is the most difficult part. Yeah, let's talk about that recourse part. So since the first kind of flooding incident happened a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. was there a lot of support offered? Like what kind of assistance has well, there been? Well, I mean, most of us have crop insurance from the government, so that will kick in, I suppose, just without us even having to really make big big kind of claims because there is a lot of knowledge about that. I think the biggest recourse that we are worried about is the kind of response we're going to get from disaster relief. Uh, the minister and other people have come and talked to us and said, you know, tell us what's, what, what are your needs? But like I said, we're, we're, it's difficult to pinpoint what those needs are and what our numbers are until the spring and the fall. So I hope that the governments are listening, that they're not just going to do a short, you know, kind of, sorry, political kind of you know, gain to, to people by giving money away, mm-hmm. but that they're really thoughtful in their approach and that they meet with industry and they are doing that. You know, get an industry perspective uh, and not just that uh, to me about the short term, but about the long term planning. Like, what does it mean in a valley that's the breadbasket of British Columbia and uh, with flooding coming up? Bigger issues need to be discussed and we need to maybe get away from the thinking of intensive farming in the way we have been doing around livestock and around uh, concentration of farming. But what do we do? British Columbia is such a unique province in the sense that this is where we have to grow our food. And I think the average consumer doesn't really understand that. Yeah. So is it making you rethink as well of of your blueberry farm and what's been going on there in the last couple of months? You think if this happens now, it can happen three times, as you mentioned, in a short period of time. What's going to happen in the future? Absolutely. I mean, not as a financial risk for us to continue to farm in this way, but we have to rethink about the kind of plantings we do, the way we do our plantings. You know, it is very, very complicated. This is millions of dollars of investment. You can't just pivot in a minute. You know, you can't just expect to turn around and do something different. We have to do some real planning. We have to heal our farms. We have to find ways to protect our berries. There is a complicated process up ahead because I don't think this is an anomaly. I don't think this this uh, atmospheric river is something that happens, you know, 75 years, like, right. last, like the last flood. I think it's something we're going to have to mitigate every couple of years. And the snow on top of it, like we don't get this kind of snow for this long. And then that's melting. And on top of it, there's more uh, water coming down. And on top of all that, uh, Simi, there are mitigating issues that need to be addressed in our communities around development, around land, around the ALR. There, it is a very large issue to talk about, as you know, about climate change and environment, environmental planning. All that needs to happen. So. We're feeling the stress of the day-to-day, you know, oh my goodness, more rain, what do we do now? But I think we're also stressed about, as farmers, about our livelihoods. And I think that discussion has to be amplified. Uh, British Columbia, Canada, the world has to talk about food and food security. I think you're absolutely right. Hopefully we can continue to have that discussion here. Sitwinder, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. Good good luck. Yeah, good luck with the farm. That is Sidwinder Baines, owner of Parsit Blueberry Farm in Claiborne Village in Abbotsford. She's also associate professor in South Asian Studies at the University of the Fraser Valley. The farm is once again the fields filled with water. She said third time in a couple of months that has happened. And they have no idea the kind of impact that is going to have on their blueberry crop until the spring comes, until the plants have a chance to kind of bloom again and they can see the kind of damage that was done. Just a period of waiting. But yes, I think there is a broader discussion to be had about food security and how we grow our food. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi.
The BC Civil Liberties Association, certainly making some headlines this week, they have just won a landmark case having to do with police accountability. So let's find out what it's all about and how it could potentially impact all of us. Joining us now is Jessica Maganet, who's legal counsel for the BC Civil Liberties Association. Jessica, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Why is this case so significant? This case is significant because it is the first time the court is interpreting the obligation of the RCMP commissioner to respond to reports from the RCMP watchdog, the Civilian Review and Complaints Commission, as soon as feasible. So the law says the RCMP commissioner needs to respond to these reports as soon as feasible. But this is the first time a court has said what that means. And the court, the Federal Court of Canada has said that that means she needs to respond within six months, except if there are exceptional circumstances. So this case is really placing a hard limit on how long the RCMP commissioner can take to respond, and it's ensuring that police complaints in this country are processed quickly and efficiently. Right, and that has not been happening, has it? No, um, the RCMP complaint system has been plagued with delays for over a decade. There have been huge systemic delays with really severe consequences. And we really hope that this case brings an end to this culture of complacency and brings real change. And so what was it that the judge found was so significant here that resulted in a ruling like this, Jessica? Like, what were some of these delays that were so egregious? Well, the delay in this very case was egregious. Uh, So this case was about a police complaint that the BCCLA filed regarding spying on Indigenous and climate advocates who were opposed to the Northern Gateway Pipeline. And in this case, it took the RCMP commissioner nearly three and a half years to respond to the watchdog report. And during this period, the whole complaint process grinds to a halt. The BCCLA doesn't know what's happening. Recommendations can't be released and implemented. So, you know, the, the court found that it should only be taken, taking the RCMP commissioner six months to respond. So a nearly three and a half year delay is really egregious. Do you think, Jessica, this is going to change anything, though? Like, what is the impetus for the RCMP to listen and change this? I absolutely think it is going to change things. This is a judicial decision saying she has maximum six months to respond. That is a clear signal from the courts that things need to change. And complainants can point to this decision if it's taking over six months. They can say, you need to abide by the rule of law. Here is what your statute says. Here is what the courts have said. Um, So I, I, I do think it is going to have an impact. Okay. And so what does this mean in a broader sense for police accountability? Is this a narrow ruling, do you think, or will it have more broad impact? I think it is a, um, I guess, yes and no. It's a narrow ruling in that it specifically applies to one complaints process, the process for bringing complaints against the RCMP, and it's about one deadline in that process. But I do think it has a broad impact in the sense that it's a court affirming the importance of police accountability, the importance of police complaint system and and the integrity of these systems and ensuring police accountability is achieved. And really, there can't be public confidence in these systems unless they function efficiently, unless we know that the RCMP commissioner is going to be held to account for how she handles complaints. 
So what is the next step then in this? Is this something that you have to check back in with the RCMP or are you going to be following along? Um, So the RCMP commissioner in Canada could appeal this decision if they want to. So we will see if that happens. I don't think that's going to happen because I think it's such a strong decision from the court, such a big win. Um, But of course, we'll be monitoring to see whether people are continuing to experience extreme delays in the system. But there are signs that things are changing even now. In what way? What signs? Um, well, th- the signs are that the backlog of complaints is being cleared. Even during the course of our litigation, the RCMP hired more staff members to deal with complaints more efficiently. So my sense is that they are taking this issue seriously. There's always a possibility for backsliding, but I think that's much harder to do once you have a judicial system, a, a, a judicial decision setting limits on your behavior. Okay. Are you hopeful then that this will have a long lasting impact that yes, they've got this six month deadline, but this is going to change things for good? Yes, I am hopeful that it will. You know, time will tell, but I think this is a pretty strong decision and I think it will have a lasting impact. Oh, sounds positive. Jessica, thank you for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for your interest in the case. Oh, it's fascinating. That's Jessica Maganet, who's legal counsel for the BC Civil Liberties Association. They won this landmark case about police accountability. They were trying to address the RCMP commissioner's extreme delays in public complaints. The commissioner has been given six months now uh, by the judge in this case to fix this system and improve it. And uh, that could mean a lot for accountability if, as Jessica points out, they don't appeal this case and get moving on. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Omicron has certainly had a huge impact all over the world. Record number of cases in the United States, across Canada. You've got schools that are trying to deal with this situation. And the thing is, it happened so quickly, right? From the moment that we first talked about it, I think Vaughn Palmer and I, first time we talked about it was at the end of November, uh, really right at the end of November. And then before you know it, within a couple of weeks, it's all anybody was talking about. But did it go the way we thought it was going to? What, what have we learned about the spread of Omicron? Well, joining us now is Carolyn Colain, who's a researcher in mathematics for infection evolution and public health. Thank you very much for being back with us. Good morning. Is there anything about the spread of Omicron that has surprised you? Well, I think when it first emerged, uh, we were surprised at how fast it spread, first in South Africa and then in Norway, Denmark, the UK, and of course, um, you know the, you know the rest. Um, it is a highly transmissible strain that that also, as you've probably heard, you know, partially evades our immunity. So. Given that what we knew that what we saw um, happening in Norway and those those other places, it's not surprising it did the same thing here. Right. So would you say like if you study these kinds of things, it spread the way we thought it was going to spread? Somewhat, yeah. I mean, the other thing is I think we we knew that the COVID was virus SARS CoV two was going to continue to evolve, and it is still going to continue to evolve. Even though we were done at Alpha and then we were done again at Delta. Oh, yes. <laughs> we were really done. We were ready for those to be done. Um, you know, evolution continued to act. And it, we did know that evolution would be favoring strains like Omicron that would be able to partially invade immunity. So we didn't, I guess, see it. You know, obviously nobody sees like, okay, in November in this country, this is how it's going to happen. You can't predict that, but you can predict the broader right. phenomenon of what's going to be favored. So 
it is highly infectious and probably faster than we might have thought compared to Delta, Alpha, the other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not that surprising that evolution continues to act, and it'll keep going after Omicron, too, even though we're, like, now really done. Oh, yeah, no kidding. So when you see like, how Omicron has worked and how it has spread, what do you find really interesting about it? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, what I'd love to know right now is, you know, how many people in BC have Omicron today? Like, we all know people with COVID. This is the first wave where we've really felt in BC, like, oh, yeah, like this friend, this colleague, (laughs) this housemate, this person, um, we know have had COVID. And I think if we knew that, it'd be great, you know, just to know, are we at the peak now? Is the peak still two weeks away? And is it going to start to recede? So that's one thing I'd love to know. What's going to happen next, of course, uh, with evolution? I don't want to think about Nobody wants to think about it. But we, we should be prepared. We shouldn't just think, okay, we're done, and we're so done with it that it must be done with us. Yeah, do you so get that need- sense from people is that they do feel like, oh, okay, no, we're done with it. This is it. Um, I Yeah, somewhat. I guess I'm thinking more in terms of, of policy and planning and, and public health planning, you know, not to think, okay, like, Finally, after so many times we've said, oh, yeah, it's endemic now. This is it. We're, you know, Um, not not to imagine that that this virus isn't going to continue to do its thing like a virus. So I think we need we need that planning. I I know we're getting more modeling from the province. I think tomorrow it's coming. Is it possible to predict the way these things completely unfold, though? Can we say, oh, we're going to have this strain, you know, um, this much strain on the system in a couple of weeks because of this? Like, do those things unfold as we expect them to when we do that kind of modeling? So I think once it's kind of baked in, yes, uh, the the short-term predictions two weeks from now have usually been pretty good. Um, It is hard to predict what people will do. So previously we've had, you know, model predictions that, that I've made and others have made that show steep rises in infections, and then those rises haven't happened because we've introduced measures. And I think even though we haven't introduced large-scale lockdown measures, people are really changing behavior. People are, you know, of course, many people are isolating and so on. So that will kind of flatten the peak, um, and I hope that it won't get much worse. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, Our models had shown peak healthcare demand in a couple of weeks, like towards the end of the month. Uh, so I'm curious to see what uh, the, pub, the public health modeling is going to show. And is that with the tweaks of the restrictions that were brought in a couple of weeks ago? I think so, yes. That might delay it a little bit. Um, because we don't know how many cases there really are, we've obviously reached our testing capacity. It is hard to get good numbers of, you know, what would we be seeing today if we could test infinitely and infinitely quickly, which, of course, we can't. So there's a lot of challenges right now just for thinking through how many infections there are, and then not knowing how many of them are necessarily causing severe disease and a healthcare burden. And then our healthcare burden being of a different kind. We're seeing, you know, more staff outbreaks, lower ICU needs maybe per infection or per case. So um, lots of uncertainty there, but uh, I hope that it will be peaking between now and the end of the month and then start to recede again. So when you say peaking between now and the end of the month, would that be the result, do you think, of our activities and what we were doing like over Christmas and over New Year's? Uh, to some extent, yeah, uh, for sure. So we, we did probably have a lot of um, you know infection events happening at Christmas New Year's and probably still more now. I guess I'm thinking um, of the peak in the number of new infections now-ish, maybe now in the next week or two. 
And then, of course, the number of reported cases would lag that and the number of hospitalizations would lag a bit more just because it takes time for people to develop an infection and and get sick. And, of course, a minority of people will need hospital care. So that, you know, bumps it down a little bit. Right. What have we learned about this wave when we look at what's happened in other jurisdictions like the UK and South Africa? Well, the UK has definitely seen a really high healthcare demand and not of the same kind exactly as previous waves, uh, with more impact on wards and more impact on staff numbers and maybe less uh, impact in terms of people needing ICU deaths and people needing, you know, ventilation. So that's great in some ways, but of course the sheer numbers have been really high. Um, maybe peaking now and starting to go down again, hopefully, but, you know, that's good. South Africa did go down, but they have a really different, um, you know, they did have a holiday that started and <laughs> various other changes that were made. So, you know, as you, as you noted, cases are still rising and at record highs, you know, all over the world. We may be a little behind the central provinces. We've always kind of been a little bit, um, you know, lucky in having our, our COVID a bit less and also a bit later than Ontario and Quebec. So we'll see how that plays out. Oh, we'll see. Always so, this must, must make your job fascinating. Like it's just so it's, much more interesting. It's interesting and it, it's challenging. I'll bet. Um, yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Absolutely. Thank you. That's Carolyn Colain, who's an epidemiologist and researcher in mathematics for infection evolution and public health, talking about Omicron and the wave of Omicron. Has it been going the way we expected? Well, more or less, yes. And if the modeling holds out, then the peak is coming this week, next week. And then we will see what happens after that. It's kind of very similar to what Dr. Henry was saying earlier this week. But, you know, it's so easy to see how that could change depending on, well, do the restrictions work? Do people not listen to the restrictions? Just that little bit of tweaking can make a difference. And again, as she said, we don't really know the number of cases right now, do we? This is Mornings with Simi. Housing affordability remains a huge issue. Prices are sky high. There's a a real lack of supply out there. In fact, we started 2022 with some of the lowest inventory available for sale in the province that we have ever seen. And yet, what is holding us back from having more supply out there? Well, a lot of times it's because municipalities have a backlog of applications. And you know what? You have those public hearings. People show up and say they don't want it in their neighborhood. And next thing you know, the project is stalled. So how do we get by that? Well, that's an interesting question, especially with municipal elections coming up this year. Uh, Joining us now for more on this and really how to tackle the problem overall is BC's Attorney General, Minister of Housing, David Eby. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. Now, this has really, I feel like, become a hotter and hotter topic, and you've talked about this as well. What do you see as critical to solving this problem? Well, I think uh, maybe it's helpful for your listeners to have a bit of an idea about the scope of the problem and why I'm so profoundly concerned about the amount of housing that we're not building. So in the most recent quarter we have data for, there were 5,777 net interprovincial folks who moved to British Columbia. So that's almost 6,000 people moving between provinces to BC in one quarter of the year. That's a three-month period. But in the same uh, quarter... 19,576 new arrivals to Canada moved to British Columbia. That's 234% above our historical average. So together, we're talking about 25,000 new residents in a three-month period in our province, and that is only going to continue. 
And at the same time, there were just over 6,000 active listings in December in the, uh, in the NLS listing service. So when we see companies like Amazon and Microsoft in Metro Vancouver, never mind uh, growing firms like Abcelera and others uh, expanding their footprint, adding new office space, hiring uh, out in the interior, um, we see uh, a return to tourism uh, it, as uh, hopefully we get past this uh, latest wave of the pandemic, things are only going to get worse unless we start building the housing. So that's that's the nature of the problem. And, and what we need are municipalities to be good partners in recognizing this. So we funded municipalities to do housing need surveys to project what their populations were going to look like so that they could zone the community appropriately for the housing that we need so that those folks who are building the housing actually know where they can build it and that it actually gets built and they get approved within reasonable timelines. Um, I think we've been successful in the first step. The municipalities now know what the housing is needed, but I'm watching hundreds of units getting turned down, 150 units in Penticton that the Chamber of Commerce said was desperately needed for workforce housing, a six-story building in Surrey for adults with developmental disabilities funded by BC Housing turned down because it was too tall. We're still waiting on the Broadway corridor um, planning uh, approvals. Uh, the subway, I'm concerned, is going to be built before the housing for the people the subway is supposed to be moved can, can get built. Uh, so, you know, it's a provincial issue. I know the politicians are aware of it. Some are more willing to do take action than others. I know Vancouver and Victoria are really grappling with this. Um, but we've got a lot to do. Right. So do you feel like, I know, you know, when the NDP government first came in in 2017, you know, you brought in the speculation tax and the foreign buyers tax and those kinds of things all got amped up. But what other levers are left for the provincial government to pull at this point to deal with the situation? Well, we're looking at other jurisdictions. So, um, and we're also working with union and BC municipalities to try to, to be cooperative about this and find solutions that work for everybody. We've done two uh, in-depth reports about what the best approach is. Uh, one is called the Development Approvals Review Process, a very technical report about how projects move through development. Another called Opening Doors, looking at how much housing supply we're going to need that we did in partnership with the federal government. So we have a number of recommendations that are setting out our work plan for us over the next year. Um, there's lots of things we can do. We recently reduced some of the hearing requirements for municipalities so they don't have to go through as many public hearings if they've already zoned a parcel uh, or already indicated a parcel should be zoned a certain way through their official development plan. It's all very technical kind of stuff that, that holds the, these kinds of projects up. But at the end of the day, uh, we do need a common understanding across the province. And, and it's not just the lower mainland, it's the interior, it's in the north, that we need to be able to build this housing. We need this housing approved when it comes forward. Right. Uh, and if we don't do that, we're going to be in a real crisis. Do you feel like we currently lack that common understanding? Yeah, I do. Uh, you know, I just read in the news yesterday, the District of North Vancouver turned down almost 50 rental housing units that are desperately needed in that community, and, and it continues. Uh, and so we're also looking at jurisdictions like uh, New Zealand, uh, Washington State, uh, Oregon, uh, uh, Massachusetts, that have uh, grappled with this problem with municipalities that uh, are unwilling to approve necessary housing. Um, you know, when Penticton turned down that rental housing, they said that, uh, that the neighbors who were already there didn't want the housing and so they weren't going to build it, even though it was desperately needed and they're in a rental housing crisis. And, and we, we have to support the municipalities and, and being able to stand up to the folks who say, look, we, we just like, you know, the way the neighborhood is right now. We don't want any more people um, living here, uh, despite the pressures in the community. And so uh, what other jurisdictions have done 
is uh, is centrally uh, either at the federal level in New Zealand or at the state level in the United States, California, for example, uh, prescribed where uh, housing can be built as of right uh, and that the municipalities have to approve it. Uh, so that's possible. I'm still hopeful that we can do a cooperative approach and provide municipalities with streamlined processes and incentives. But if that's not successful, we are prepared to take those additional steps if necessary. Right. But how soon of those additional steps could you be doing that? Because this, this is a municipal election year. What politician is going to run for local office by saying we are going to build more stuff in your neighborhood? Well, I actually think a few of them are. Uh, and, uh, and it's not just uh, Vancouver. I think there are a number of different municipalities uh, uh, where uh, candidates are willing to go out and say this, this is what we need to do and where they're going to see support for that. I think that a lot of people are tired of, and, and, and I think there's sort of a, a, a growing understanding that when people see encampments in their community, when they see people living in cars, that that's connected to the fact that we're not building the rental housing that we need, that we're not building sufficient housing stock because the people who get pushed out are the folks at the bottom as they're, as their rental housing gets redeveloped for people with higher incomes and uh, because those folks can afford to pay for more rent. And so this is, this is driving all of the housing is connected. And so that understanding is growing. And and also there's a growing understanding in the polling that I'm seeing that people need to be able to build on their own property um, more density if they want to. And uh, so, you know, I, I hear a lot of conversation about, well, the province needs to ban single family housing. I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think we need to allow people to build more density if they choose to do that. Um, and, uh, and those are conversations we're having, but more than just conversations, we're doing the policy work. And I hope that by the fall legislative session, we should have some significant reforms in place, either cooperatively uh, or setting out requirements for municipalities. Okay, so you're saying that this year we should see some progress on this? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I don't think there's a listener out there that doesn't understand that we're in a very serious housing crisis. Those numbers I gave you at the top of the interview... Uh, they, they keep me up at night because uh, they are not going away. The feds have committed to 400,000 new arrivals in Canada per year. A uh, significant percentage of those folks are going to be coming to British Columbia and settling in our major uh, centres, Metro Vancouver, South Vancouver Island. We need housing for those folks. And, you know, while in the same period, Ontario lost 24,000 residents, BC picked up 50,000 uh, residents over a six-quarter uh, six period. So we have massive in-migration to our province interprovincially and internationally. And we need to be building that housing. Otherwise, we're going to be in a real San Francisco-style mess. Right. So what do you say to them, to the people who do go to those public hearings and say, not in my neighborhood, somewhere else? Well, I, I mean, you know, uh, good for you uh, for going to express your opinion. I think that that's uh, appropriate and, and democratic. But I think that that should take place at a community planning level, not at a site-by-site level. Um, I think communities should have a say about where the housing goes. I don't think that they should have a say about whether the housing goes. Uh, and that's a big and important distinction um, and one that we're trying to work on with municipalities. All right, we'll see what happens. Thank you so much for talking to us about that today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. David Eby is the Minister of Housing. And as you can tell, this could potentially be a change year when it comes to how projects get approved in this province. They want to do it cooperatively, he said, but if not, they will still make it happen. And so all those public hearings where projects get delayed, uh, perhaps that's just not going to happen. Now, if you want to weigh in on what you just heard there, is this the answer? Is this the way we get more stuff built, more supply into the system? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Oh, I don't think it's a surprise to find out that so many of us are feeling stressed and anxious, and maybe we're feeling it more right now because of everything that's going on out there. Well, you're not alone if you feel that way. A new study shows that an overwhelming two-thirds of our population are frustrated by the current COVID situation and restrictions. Here to talk more about all of this and what they found out in this survey is Taz Rajan, who's the Community Engagement Partner at Bromwich and Smith. Taz, thank you very much for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Tell me about this survey that you did. So what kind of questions were you asking? Thanks. Yes, we did an Angus Reid service. Uh, survey, sorry, for Bromwich and Smith. And the question was, how worried are you about the following? And we gave different options for Canadians to choose, such as cost of living and inflation, mental health, COVID burnout, saving money, managing debt. You know, those are some of the different options that we put out in the survey. Okay, so what are we worried about Overwhelmingly, the number one thing that Canadians are worried about is inflation and cost of living, which makes sense. It's really been in the news. It's very top of mind right now. And, you know, if you think about about inflation and cost of living, that has a very direct impact on each of us and, you know, how we live our daily lives. No, no kidding. So 84% of us said that we are worried about cost of living and inflation. Uh, where, Where did COVID play into all this? Yeah, COVID restrictions, about 66% of Canadians are saying that that's something they're worried about. And of course, this will vary by region because, you know, certain provinces uh, have different lockdown measures or different things in place. But it really, with the COVID restrictions, it's that fatigue and there's just such an uncertainty. It's, it's inconsistent, so it's really out of our control. And I don't know about you, but I don't think any of us expected this to last. You know, for me, I remember being sent home and thinking, oh, we'll be back in two weeks. And here right. we are, you know, two years later. So it is it is that fatigue and that overwhelm. Yeah, it certainly feels like that, too. So even with all of that going on, though, does it surprise you to find out that more than that, though, people are worried about kind of economic issues? You know, it's not surprising for me in the industry that I'm in, because, of course, you know, money in our finances are interwoven into every aspect of our lives, right? So if you look at, okay, cost of living and inflation, well, yes, being worried about saving money and managing my expenses and managing my debt, of course, plays into that, right? It affects our relationships. It affects our mental and physical health. So it actually is not surprising to us at all. Did you notice a difference, though, in people's concerns like across the country, or were there some issues that seemed kind of universal? Yeah, um, there are slight regional differences. So, uh, you know, I'll tell you in BC, um, you know, 73% of respondents said that they were worried about being able to save money, whereas Canada-wide, that's 63%. So it's a little bit higher in BC. And again, you can see why that is. Look at all the different things that have been happening between the mudslides and, um, you know, all of the different things that have been happening with the shutdowns. And it, it makes sense that there's this worry of, Am I going to be able to save enough money for emergencies, a rainy day, my retirement, maybe a big purchase down the road? Are people making those decisions, do you think, like deciding to put things off and like, are they responding to these economic worries? 
Yeah, I, I think that is a really great question. And, you know, one of the things we wanted to focus on is, you know, there's the worry side of things. Well, how do we combat that worry? And the best way to combat that worry is to give people some actionable tasks, some things that you can do so that, you know, worry is sort of sitting there and thinking about the future versus if you actually start to take some action towards the things that you're worried about, it can, it can really take a load off your shoulders. All right. So was there an area that stood out for you? Like when you look at those regional differences, was there any area where you thought, oh, well, that's a little bit different? Yeah, for sure. You know, in Alberta, COVID restrictions was one of the lowest things that, you know, Albertans were worried about because, of course, we haven't had the same restrictions here. But I think one that that is to highlight definitely are, you know, there's several questions around finance that really did score high. So like I said, being able to save money 73%. Managing expenses, 47%. Managing debt, 44%. And then job insecurity. And of course, insecurity of a job is going to play into your finances. That's 41%. So we'd really love to leave Canadians with, hey, here are some action steps that you can take today to help you relieve that worry. Uh, So job insecurity, that's an interesting one, 41%. And yet we hear about how tight the job market is right now, that really it is a, a finder's market, right? That there's plenty of jobs out there. Yeah, it's, it's sort of this, there's a, the duality of it, right? Where, okay, we don't have enough staff, we're looking for staff, but then there are, you know, certain industries where, you know, one day you go into work and the next day, hey, we've got to shut down, you know, we're not doing dine-in anymore. Or, you know, you look at the airline industry. So I think, you know, the disparity is coming from the different industries. And you're right, in some ways, it's a total finder's market, but it is... It, fear is not necessarily logical. So this is what we fear. This is what we are worried about. Right. Okay. So then when you look at these results, Taz, what does it tell you about how Canadians are feeling right now? Canadians are just feeling overwhelmed. I think we've sort of hit a bit of a wall and there are multiple things that Canadians are starting to fret and worry about. There's lots of things that are coming out in the news and in media, but then there's their own personal lives that they're dealing with. And so, you know, this tells me, um, A, if you're feeling this way, you're not alone. You know, when we're looking at a stat like 82% of, uh, you know, or 84% of Canadians, sorry, are concerned about cost of living or inflation, if you're starting to feel this way, you're certainly not alone and that there are solutions, there are options to help you deal with this worry and be able to move forward. Well, I guess it's a little reassuring to know we're not alone anyway. But Taz, thank you so much for your time on that today. Okay, you bet. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. That's Taz Rajan, who's a community engagement partner at Bromwich and Smith. Uh, they did this Angus Reid survey where they asked people essentially how Canadians are feeling. 84% overwhelmingly, that's a huge number, said they're worried about the cost of living and inflation. When it came to COVID restrictions and those issues, that was about two-thirds, so about 66%. So you can see the huge difference there that really top of mind for Canadians right now is economic issues. That's what is worrying us. Seven out of 10 Canadians, about 70% say that they're worried about their physical and mental health or, you know, you're getting COVID burnout or maybe sleep deprivation. I don't think those results come as a huge shock to any of us that are probably feeling some of those things right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, who doesn't love the experience of having a drink or maybe having something to eat with, you know, Han Solo frozen in carbonite hovering over you? 
Well, if that sounds familiar to you, then undoubtedly you have been to Stormcrow Alehouse in Vancouver. Now, they used to have a bunch of locations. The pandemic has changed things. They are going to be closing their doors. But if you really can't live without some of the great stuff that you used to see there, well, there's a solution for that. Joining us now is Jason Kapalka, owner of Stormcrow Alehouse in Vancouver. Jason, thanks for being here. Um, well, uh, thanks for having me. I'm sorry to hear about the closure. I mean, there's been a lot of people who've offered support for this. Has that surprised you? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, obviously it's not a, a a great thing to happen, but it has been nice that we've seen a real outpouring of support from the uh, community of people, you know, who are going to miss the Ale House and the Storm Crow in general. And yeah, they've been, you know, coming out, uh, we, we're still open until Sunday, and so lots of people have been coming out, and a lot of people have been bidding on our auctions for the various memorabilia. Uh, so that's nice, because uh, we're going to use most of the proceeds there to pay for you know, closing costs and give it to the staff. Um, yeah, and hopefully the, some of the cooler items will go on to find a, a nice home. Well, you've got quite a collection there. Tell me, how was all of this assembled, like, over time? Is this something that you've been collecting for years? Well, yeah, I mean, we have a lot of weird stuff. Some of it is, you know, strange, nerdy autographs I had lying around in my basement. Some of it is stuff you just, you know, found on the internet. Some of it's from conventions. Some of it is, uh, a lot of it, so the cool pieces were uh, custom made. There are some visual effects guys who are, you know, off work on movies who we commissioned to make some of the big pieces like the giant Rancor head or the uh, Beholder. Uh, so, yeah, we, we had a wide range of strange items there. First of all, I just love that you have a giant Rancor head there. Um, I'm assuming that's from Return of the Jedi. Uh, I, yes. <laughs> it's, a, it's technically a baby Rancor because the full-size Rancor head wouldn't, wouldn't fit in the bar. Well, no, obviously not. Okay, so you've had a lifetime of collecting all of this. So then why decide to do this? Why decide to auction it off this way? Well, <clears throat> we're not getting rid of everything. So some stuff is going to probably go to the, uh, the Stormcrow Manor in Toronto which is our uh, other location, which is, uh, well, I'd say it's open, because, but it's technically closed right now because everything in Toronto is closed, but it'll be reopening in a couple weeks, we hope. Uh, so some stuff is definitely going there. Um, and then some other stuff will go in storage, and, you know, I've got some plans, hopefully, for the future in Vancouver, so it may return. Um, but some of the other things, you know, really, it's just kind of we want to, you know, find a way to both raise money for the staff and to, you know, uh, make sure that, you know, these items didn't just go into a storage locker or in the garbage. Cause I definitely didn't want that to happen. No, absolutely not. So tell me what would allow you to return? If you envision kind of coming back and having another business here in Vancouver, like what, under what circumstances could that happen? Well, I don't, I don't think it's far fetched at all. I mean, the, the reasons for the closures were, you know, kind of fairly obvious for the most part, you know, the COVID related stuff. Although in the case of the Ale House, we also had the challenge of uh, all the SkyTrain uh, construction on Broadway, which unfortunately um, is not going to go away for some time. So I think once COVID passes, I think that the chances of finding a new location in Vancouver are pretty good. So we're keeping our eye out for, you know, kind of likely spots uh, later this year, maybe. Okay. But in the meantime, you've got all this stuff. So tell me about some of the other items. What are some of your favorites? Um, well, the, 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 out of the big items, you know, we've got the Han Solo and Carbonite, of course. Uh, we have a, a, a Millennium Falcon that kind of goes along with it, which is about six feet wide, which was kind of a, a very rare, you know, item. There were only 500 of them made back in the 1980s, I think, and we 
you know, found it on eBay and then had to restore it and repaint it and do a bunch of things. Um, there's also, there's one item that may not be up for sale, which I like the most, which is our giant beholder, which is this multi-eyed monster from uh, Dungeons and Dragons. And we've actually been putting up a lot of our strange custom signs and things that we have on the walls. We have a lot of weird, uh, nerdy, you know, signs all over the place. And uh, people have been surprisingly buying as I guess a, a memento. Yeah, I can see why for sure. If they've had some good times there, so where can people like go to find out more about this auction and the items? Um, it's on our website, so you can go to uh, probably the most direct way would be go to shop dot stormcrow dot com, and uh, we've got all the different auction and uh, items listed there, so they can take a look at that. And we're still adding adding more as we as we count down into the final days, so we keep putting up more stuff. And so what has been some of the most popular stuff that people are bidding on right now? As you were saying, some of the science too, but did something really surprise you? Uh, probably the weirdest one is we had a thing we called the Jar Jar in a Jar, which was the, the head of Jar Jar Binks uh, in a big glass jar. And uh, <laughs> originally we had tried to, we had planned to sell drinks out of it, like with a little faucet that would dispense some kind of you know liquor. But people just found that too disgusting, so we can nobody nobody wanted to drink jar jar fluid. Um, but yeah, that uh, that jar jar in a jar, we put it up there, and I think someone, I think people bid it up to like four hundred dollars. So I was, I was a little surprised by that. You know, I'm taking a look at some of the items that you got, and one of the ones that also just kills me is the from Ghostbusters two, the Vigo the Carpathian painting, which was a yeah. huge part of Ghostbusters two. That sounds like it was also pretty popular. Yeah, that one also did well. It's uh, it was kind of that one had a, that was a well, it was weird. It was a real painting in the sense that uh, uh, kind of there's that there's a, <clears throat> a place in China that would make paintings of your pets if you sent them a photo, and instead I sent them a picture of Vigo the Carpathian and they they painted that. <laughs> so it was it was a it's a real painting. It's not like a good painting, but no. it's a real painting. But it's right out of the movie too. It's classic. Yeah. Also, your Star Trek Klingon Batleth set, and who wouldn't want one of those? But like more than five hundred dollars, and that sold pretty fast. Yeah, yeah, no, that was a, a custom thing. We had one of the guys back almost ten years ago who hung out in the bar, uh, who I just kind of handcrafted it out of uh, various chunks of metal. So it's kind of a handmade Klingon Klingon weapon. I love this. Okay, so again, where is all the money going to go from this auction? Um, the auction is going to our uh, staff. We're getting laid off, so we're once we've sort of settled it all out and uh, mailed everything or had people pick it up, we'll divide it amongst our staff. All right. Well, listen. Best of luck, Jason, and hope to see you back in business soon here in Vancouver. Well, thank you. That is Jason Kapalka, owner of Stormcrow Alehouse in Vancouver. They are closing on Sunday, but you've got to check out their auction that's going on. It's shop.stormcrow.com. You go to the the memorabilia auction that they're doing to benefit their staff. There, There's still some really, if you're a geek, if you're a nerd, if you love this kind of weird movie stuff, there is some great stuff that is still available there. Of course, uh, the big stuff, a lot of it, like that Ghostbusters 2 picture is hilarious. That's sold. But yeah, there's still some great stuff there, including items from Game of Thrones, you name it. And the money, as you heard Jason say, will go towards staff who are going to be laid off. So check it out online. It is shop.stormcrow.com.